This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumelele Zondi. We are coming to you on 7260 kHz in the 31 meter band. If you are in Southern Africa, you can also stream us. It's channelafrica.co.za. I'm with Joel Anetulo, Tracy Pumgard and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. Provisional results in Madagascar's presidential election indicate the possibility of a run of vote. Disabled persons protest the deepening crisis in Cameroon's rest of English-speaking regions. In economics, Nissan accuses its chairperson of acts of misconduct and calls for his dismissal. And in sport, South Africa's Casta Semenya surprisingly misses out on IAAF Athlete of the Year shortlist. Here's Jolana Tulo. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. A senior official in an influential faction of Ethiopia's ruling coalition has accused Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of ethnic profiling in an anti-corruption drive that has seen scores arrested. Chairperson of the TPLF, Deberson Gebri Michel, says the arrests of more than 60 senior military and intelligence officers in recent weeks was the attack on ethnic Tigrayans. The TPLF was a founding member of the long-ruling EPRDF, which the Tigrayans have traditionally held the reins of power. However, the appointment of Ahmed on Anoromo in April has loosened the has loosened their grip on government. Among those so far arrested are a former deputy spy chief and the former head of the military-owned Metals and Energy Corporation. Nigeria's opposition leader Aktu Abubakar Law has launched his presidential campaign vowing to create millions of jobs to tackle rising inequality and insecurity. Abubakar launched his campaign on a nine-minute address streamed live on Facebook and Twitter. He emphasized the poverty under which Nigerians live in. Abubakar drew criticism and skepticism when he announced his intention to run in the February 2019 presidential elections. He is dogged by allegations of corruption from his previous position as vice president nigerian president muhammadu buhari has also began his official campaigning elections are set for next year king salman of saudi arabia says he trusts the judiciary and his country to ensure justice as international pressure over the murder of jamal khashoggi continues to grow the king was speaking at the opening of the saudi's parliament the bbc's sebastian usher has the story This brief speech from King Salman appeared aimed at reassuring Saudis that nothing has changed since the revelations over Jamal Khashoggi's killing. The man in the eye of that storm, his son and heir, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, was sitting in the front row next to the Grand Mufti. The king made clear that the changes enacted under the Crown Prince's de facto rule would continue, and he also talked of the centrality of the Palestinian issue. Israel's Education Minister Naftali Bennett has said he will not quit Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition government despite sharp agreements. Netanyahu has been left with a single-seat majority after the resignation of the Defence Minister Avigdor Lieberman last week. The BBC's Yolandi Nell reports. 
The Prime Minister has said it's unnecessary and wrong to go to an early election at what he calls a sensitive time for Israel's security. But several of his coalition partners had appeared to support an early vote. Speaking at the Israeli parliament, the leader of the Jewish Home Party, Naftali Bennett, heavily criticized what he called the government's over-cautious approach dealing with Hamas militants in Gaza and security issues in general. However, he said he'd remain in the coalition and tacitly accepted the decision of Mr. Netanyahu to appoint himself as the new defense minister. And finally, a new report by the UK-based charity WaterAid reveals that more than 600 million children do not have decent school toilets. The global sanitation crisis is on the spotlight as we mark World Toilet Day today. Guinea-Bissau on the coast of West Africa tops the table for worst in the world for school toilets, while Ethiopia remains the nation with the most people without household toilets at an astonishing 93%. WaterAid Regional Support Officer Sakile Kaweka elaborates. Some of the findings that we have from our report as WaterAid, we reveal that one in three of the world's population have no safe place to go for a toilet, and that is about 2.3 billion people. So this uh, denial of basic human rights contributes to an appalling death of viral diseases for one child every two minutes. So that makes about 289,000 children under five each year. And then uh, we have about 620 million school-going children that do not have different toilets at school. For Child Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Provisional results in Madagascar's presidential election indicate that there will be a run of vote as neither of the top two contenders of the vote won 50% required for a first round win. Former President Andri Rajalina won 39% of the vote and another former president, Mark Ravalomanana, received 35% of the vote. The remainder of the votes were split up between the 34 other candidates. The runoff is scheduled for December 19 after the Constitutional Court has validated the results. Only 54% of Madagascar's nearly 10 million registered voters cast their ballots below the first round of the 2013 presidential election where the where the participation rate was 61%. Channel Africa spoke to Ketekandriana Rafidoson, Director of Transparency International in Madagascar. And this was to coach the situation in light of the possible run of votes. We are still expecting here because, you know, uh, the uh, the results have been issued, right? But the, these are just temporary results. And we are waiting for the verdict from the High Constitutional Court, which should be released before November 26. So for the moment, we have the trends uh, which say that uh, Andrew Zedna is leading the race with uh, around 39% of the polls, uh, followed by Raval Manano with uh, 35% of the polls. And at the third place, you have the former president, Edita Tonarmapian, which made almost 9% of the polls. So uh, all the partisans of each of these candidates are, you know, waiting for the, the final answer, which will come from the High Constitutional Court, we feel like there is something in the air, though. 
because one of these candidates have already said, I mean, by candidates, the 36 ones, uh, most of them have already said that they will not accept the result such as uh, the electoral body have released them because there were too many irregularities regarding this election and uh, they have the feeling that the vote has been rigged. So there is tension in the air now. We are feeling, we are fearing that some riots will happen this week. Now, do you think there will be changes when the Constitutional Court announces the final results? I'm not sure that I will have the answer to your question, but I see two kinds of possibilities. One, that the the High Court will confirm the the temporary results, so no change. Uh, Razuena and Ravalmanana will run together. But the second uh, option that I'm thinking of is that maybe, I say maybe, the High Constitutional Court will just, you know, you know, they, they will annulate, they will cancel this election. Like they will say, there were too many irregularities and we have received too many complaints from the candidates, from the voters, from the, the electoral, the international community. So we are going to cancel the election and organize a new one. That is one possibility. What has been the response of the National Electoral Commission with regards to these irregularities that you are talking about? So they have tried, they are told that uh, during the ceremony on Saturday, they said that they did their best in order to ensure that all the process was clear and transparent and all the loopholes for vote rigging were checked and uh, mastered. But, you know, most of the population don't trust the electoral administration no more because a lot of ordinary voters, I mean, like me, had problems during the polling day as they couldn't vote. So this is a real problem that ordinary people felt. And now there are lots of suspicions ongoing that the results have been rigged so that it doesn't, they don't really translate people's choice. So people are angry regarding the electoral body now. Now, is it a feeling of Madagascar that the vote was rigged in favor of Andre Rajolina, one of the two top contenders? You know, we, there is a lot of rumors going here now. Uh, some people say that Andre Rajolina should have won at the first round with around 55% of the polls. And uh, the vote has been rigged in favor of Rabat Manana. That is one rumor going. And another one is that Razonat uh, Makana is now fueling Rabat Manana and they have a deal that they will make uh, Rabat Manana pass at the second round. But no one knows exactly what's going on. It is very hard to dig further and to have evidence of these rumors here. So we are all really expecting the results and the final word from the High Constitutional Court to set up the truth and uh, and maybe and see what we are going to do in the upcoming weeks. Will we enter again in the electoral campaign 
or shall we organize another form or what? But what I'm expecting is just that we won't have a new five years crisis. This is just what I'm fearing and I'm also fearing violence to happen. Now, what has been the response of the incumbent president, Harry Rajauna Rimampianina, because he secured only 9% of the vote? Is it, yeah. is it his feeling as well that the vote was rigged? Yes, this is his feeling. Like, he, he clearly said, not him directly, but his team said uh, to the media that they won't accept the results of this first round because it is impossible that the president just made 9% while he has spent uh, all his time, you know, um, chasing after voters, talking to them directly, campaigning everywhere. This is impossible. That's what they say. There is Geta Kadriana Rafi Dawson, Director of Transparency International in Madagascar, talking to Kumbero Munjarer. She is in Antananarivo, the capital of Madagascar. Disabled persons are protesting the deepening crisis in Cameroon, restive English-speaking regions, after at least a dozen of them have been brutally killed by both government forces and the armed separatists fighting for the creation of an English-speaking state. Their protests in Cameroon town uh, today come after a, a bloody week or after a bloody weekend rather here's Moke Kinzaka in Niaunde 54-year-old Ndende Martin sits about a kilometer away from Cameroon's Ministry of Defense protesting the killing of physically challenged people by both the military and armed groups in the restive English-speaking regions of the Central African state Martin, who has been living with hearing impairment for 35 years, went to teach philosophy in the English-speaking northwestern town of Com in September 2017. He was there for barely a month when his school was attacked and torched for disobeying instructions by armed separatists on them to keep schools closed. Martin says he and several teachers were seized and tied on a tree for a week before Cameroon military arrived and saved them. He says he was taken to a hospital and his right hand was amputated. He says he is an unfortunate victim of the unacceptable things armed gangs do to people in the English-speaking regions of Cameroon simply because he accepted to go and educate children in the restive areas, believing that true patriots and loving parents would never accept to compromise the education of their children and that even in war-torn countries, children are protected and allowed their right to education. He says the state should take its responsibility because armed groups in the English-speaking regions want chaos and are killing and maiming. He says he does not know who the armed gangs think they are leading when they kill and amputate people at will. Martin joined several dozen other handicapped persons in Yaoundé to protest torture and killings on physically challenged persons in the restive regions. Christopher Ayumbe, 
leader of the NGO Cameroon Coalition of People Living with Disabilities, says he organized the protests in towns in the restive regions and Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, to ask both the military and armed gangs to stop brutalizing and killing civilians, especially handicapped persons. He says they have lost more than 12 people living with disabilities in the war and many are feared dead since his group has not been able to trace them. We are going to educate the military services how to engage persons with disabilities in crisis time. We have persons with disabilities who do not hear and they were shot down based on the fact that they gave instructions and they did not hear. So in such situations, how do you identify someone who do not hear? How do you identify somebody who cannot see? Ayombe said after weekend clashes in Com Northwest region, a blind person was killed and they were told by witnesses he did not know where to go and simply sat on the ground until he died in the shooting. Colonel Dideb Bajek, spokesperson for Cameroon's military, says soldiers have remained professional and avoid killing the population. He says when they get reports that an innocent citizen was targeted or killed, military hierarchy recommend immediate investigations be opened and when found guilty, such a soldier is punished according to Cameroon laws. Le ministre délégué à la présidence chargé de la défense à chaque étape et chaque fois que l'occasion s'est présentée. Colonel Bajek says Cameroon's defense minister always reminds his military on the need to remain professional even in difficult moments and does not hesitate to punish any soldier found to have abused the rights of citizens. He says while the military is respecting the rights of all citizens, armed terrorists who regularly drug themselves go attacking and killing civilians ceaselessly. Bajek did not give specific examples about soldiers punished for abuses but said in the last year, Hundreds have been kidnapped and more than 1,200 people, including separatists, police, military and gendarmes, have been killed in the fighting. Last week, Cameroon military announced that it had killed 20 terrorists in Com, including the separatist General Amigo. Still last week, 13 female novices and three sisters of the Roman Catholic Church in the northwestern town of Kumbu were kidnapped and freed after 24 hours. Authorities refuted ransom was paid. Early this month, 79 students and three of their staff members were released after they were kidnapped from the northwestern village of Nguyen. Nearly a quarter million people have fled the ongoing violence, many leaving their homes on foot with their belongings tittering on their heads. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki. Kinzaka in Yaoundi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka.
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It is 17.19 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, Amnesty International says South Africa's Minister of Health, Aaron Mutualedi, should stop what it calls the shameless scapegoating of refugees and migrants. This is in response to a statement made by the minister that foreign nationals are behind the overcrowding of hospitals and the struggling health system. Amnesty International says the minister has been in charge of the health department for almost a decade and should have been fully aware of the challenges faced by the public health system, including the need for more investment to address the health needs of the growing population. It says he has failed to take adequate action. More from Executive Director of Amnesty International South Africa, Shanila Mohammed. Well, you know, we've seen a consistent uh, flow of what we regard to be very irresponsible statements coming out of the South African government. You know, this is not the first time that refugees and migrants have been scapegoated on various issues. I mean, they get blamed for high crime stats. Now, Alan Mutsaledi is saying that the reason the health system is failing its citizens is because there's an influx of, of refugees and migrants. And that is just not true. And I think that, you know, we need to hold these leaders to account because what they're doing with these very irresponsible responsible statement is they are inciting xenophobic violence and nothing they say is based on facts. So I'll give you an example. You know, they, they talk about an influx of refugees and migrants into South Africa, but the 2016 Stats South Africa a community survey that was done showed that out of 55 million, a population of 55 million, only 1.6 million are foreigners. So, I mean, you can see already that, you know, all of these things are not based on true realities and facts, and it's just a way for the South African government, or these officials in particular, to distract the public from the fact that they are not providing uh, the services to their people that need to be provided and they're using foreigners as a scapegoat. Now, have you been able to engage the minister at all, Shanila's Amnesty International, or at least, you know, send some form of statement uh, to government around your concerns? We've consistently engaged with the government. We've consistently uh, raised our concerns. I mean, you have people like the the mayor of Johannesburg, Herman Mashaba, making very, very irresponsible statements about crime and about the fact that, you know, uh, foreigners are bringing Ebola into the country. I mean, you know, we we are really, really uh, concerned at the approach that the government has taken. That's Executive Director of Amnesty International South Africa, Ashanela Mohammed, speaking to Zikona Miso. The Nigerian-based Women at Risk International Foundation, WARF, has gone live in a move to digitally combat sexual violence of girls and women across the country. WARF's only platform is made possible by SAP, a software solutions company. The application manages communication between victims and the foundation so that they get assistance without being stigmatized. For more on the initiative, here's the digital lead at SAP Africa, Paige Dushandosh. So SAP has been involved with Women at Risk International Foundation, which we refer to as WARF because it's quite a long name. And basically what that we've gone live with recently is the SAP People Connect 365 solution, which WARF is using to be able to provide a platform for women that suffer rape, sexual violence, or human trafficking to be able to report the incidences of that without the stigma associated with going to a physical place, and then to be able to 
to receive feedback and be connected to someone who can help provide them with the support to be able to give them a journey back to recovering from the, tra- the trauma. So that's in essence what we've gone out with recently over the last few months. Now, is this online platform only addressing gender-based violence and related issues in Nigeria only? WARF works solely in Nigeria at this stage, and given the the high incidence of gender-based violence that they were suffering from, it made sense for us to to go live there first. Now, you've touched on my next question. I wanted us to talk about Nigeria. How rife is gender-based violence? What are some of the concerns in that country? So I think there's quite a a number of things. Obviously, gender-based violence is something that we face from a global perspective, but in particular, I think there's there's quite a high incidence of rapes, of human trafficking elements that are starting to to really have an impact on the communities in Nigeria. And this is why there was such a big focus around being able to help remove the stigma associated with reporting the incidences so that what we were able to do is get more insight into what was happening in which communities and to be able to start to predict and preempt and stop those instances from escalating to a very high level. Now Paige, why an online platform to address gender-based violence? I'm just wondering, is there confidence that um, this initiative will reach out to all women in society, even those in rural Nigeria? So from an SAP perspective, I think a large portion of the work that we do is focused on uncovering what the problem we're trying to solve with our customers and our partners looks like before we then get involved in terms of determining what the technology is that would best solve that. So we spent quite a bit of time unpacking with WARF what their needs were from a design thinking perspective. And there was two elements at play. The first is, is that if you physically have to go into a center to be able to report an instance of gender-based violence or rape, there's a certain stigma associated with that and a fear of being seen and victimized as a result, further as a result of, of being seen. So being able to report the instances via a digital platform was very important. But that said, we also couldn't make the assumption that every woman who became a victim had A, access to a smartphone, um, and B, access to a data platform. So the reason why we went with the SAP People Connect 365 is because it doesn't matter whether or not you have a smartphone or a feature phone. It's an SMS or email-based service that basically picks up certain keywords and then uses workflows and automated responses to be able to give that victim reassurance that their their report has been acknowledged and then to be able to go a step further and enable them to connect with a human being who's able to help them in that process. The other benefit that, that results off the back of it is that when we use the People Connect 365 solution, we now all of a sudden are able to monitor and measure events relating to gender-based violence. So it enables WARF and the, the other partners that they work with to help with early detection and prevention of these cases in affected communities. Is it too early to ask what has been the response so far? Are you seeing more women coming forward? So it is very, very early. We've only just recently gone live with the solution, but it appears that it's having a good results so far and we're really looking forward to getting the results back from that um, very, very soon. So we'll be able to report on that in a month or two.
Are you perhaps planning to have it in other countries like South Africa, for instance, given gender-based violence in our country? It's also a huge problem. Absolutely. So Warrior slowly works out of Nigeria. So at the moment, that's where our focus will be from a country perspective. However, the SAP People Connect 365 solution is available worldwide. And we've, got, we've obviously got a lot of enterprise customers on a global basis. So we'll very much be open to working with other agencies as well as needed to be able to scale this into other countries as there definitely is a need um, from a global and especially in a South African perspective. That is uh, Paige Doshandosh, a digital lead for SAP Africa, talking to Jane Rabotata. If you're interested in a real-life story of friendship, then join Channel Africa for a book reading of 65 Years of Friendship, written by George Bezos about his relationship with African icon Nelson Mandela. From Monday to Thursday at 2200 Central African Time and during the weekend on Saturday and Sunday at 800 hours Central African Time. Join us for 65 Years of Friendship, a real-life drama. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Under the high patronage of His Majesty King Mohammed VI, Morocco is celebrating the 20th anniversary of AfriCities from November the 20th to the 24th in Marrakesh. But what is AfriCities? It is the most important democratic gathering in Africa. Morocco will welcome more than 5,000 participants, including 3,000 African elected officials, who will imagine its future under the theme of transition towards sustainable cities. AfriCities will have Host more than 150 sessions with an exhibition space of 8,000 square meters and 15,000 expected visitors. So, meet us in Marrakesh, the beating heart of Africa on the move. Channel Africa will be there and will bring you news and views of and from the event. So join Channel Africa between the 20th to the 24th of November at the 8th edition of the AfriCities in Marrakesh, Morocco. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is 17.30 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Here's Chola Natula with you and news headlines. Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, a senior official in an influential faction of Ethiopia's ruling coalition has accused Prime Minister Abi Ahmed of ethnic profiling in an anti-corruption drive that has seen scores arrested. Nigeria's opposition leader Atiku Abubakar has launched his presidential campaign vowing to create millions of jobs to tackle rising inequality and insecurity. And finally, King Salman of Saudi Arabia says he trusts the judiciary in his country to ensure justice as international pressure over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi continues to grow. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
1731 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. It is info at channelafrica.co.za on Twitter or Channel Africa, rather on email, Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Rwandan President Paul Kagame says the adoption of the African Union reforms does not necessarily mean an end to the process, calling for speedy implementation of the reforms by the AU Commission and member states. Kagame, who is the chairperson of the African Union, was speaking at the closing ceremony of the 11th Extraordinary Summit of the African Union convened in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia over the weekend. Heads of state and ministers had gathered at the party's headquarters in Addis Ababa for what was seen as a last-ditch attempt to push through reforms that have been mulled for nearly two years. For more on whether the proposed reforms will make the continental body more effective, Channel Africa spoke to Elisa Jobson, head of African Advocacy for International Crisis Group. I think that it's it's great that the African Union is going to be self-reliant. I think I would disagree with your characterization of it as toothless. Um, it's one of the few organizations that is able to suspend its members and has suspended members um, when they don't um, adhere to, to some of the, the African Union's uh, policies and uh, prescriptions. I think that, um, you know, the African Union member states paying for the, for the union means that they will have some greater ownership of the union and also more accountability. Does the uh, self-reliant AU mean um, effectiveness then in terms of the ability to tackle uh, these continental challenges? I think I think it, uh, it, it's a step towards effectiveness. As I said, um, the fact that member states will be paying for the paying more for the African Union means that there's greater ownership and a greater accountability. But there's still areas that, that need reform within the within the African Union, um, in particular the. Uh, how how staff are recruited and, and also the development and motivation of, of staff at the African Union Commission. Also, the the relationships between the regional economic communities and the and the African Union Commission need to be clarified. And similarly, I, I think that you know the the methods of of how the the, the commission the commissioners and the the, the chairperson are elected uh, is is really is really important as well. And the combination of these things will lead to to greater effectiveness. Our members, uh, we know that um, they agreed on on streamlining the commission um, instead uh, of uh, Kagame's plan to give the AU uh, head um, sort of power to appoint their own deputy and commissioners. Let's talk a little bit about that. Is streamlining the best solution in your view? I think I think streamlining is a good idea. The the African Union currently covers. Um, I think too too many different areas. You know, there are there are certain areas that it's that it's particularly good at. Um, peace and security is one of them, and increasingly political affairs. I think um, Kagame was hoping to to reduce the scro- scope much more significantly, and I think we, we're seeing a reduction from from eight commissioners down to six, which in in my opinion is is not enough. You know, the the, the African Union is not an implementing body. It it should be setting norms um, and, and setting the direction for the continent. And I think that we've still got too many commissions that, that won't be able to, to sort of fully implement the, their work. So whilst it's an improvement that we've got down to six um, instead of eight, uh, I think it would have been good to see this cut further. And in terms of the 
the selection methods of the of the of the commission leadership i think it's essential that the african union chairperson can can choose his can can help choose those who work underneath him at the moment he's the first among equals and has very little say over the the commissioners because they're elected through the exactly the same process so i think that giving the the chairperson more say over how the commissioners are elected would would improve the process that is Elisa Jobson, who is the head of African advocacy for the International Crisis Group, talking to Kumbero Munjadere. Elisa is in Brussels in Belgium. The global sanitation crisis is on the spotlight as we mark World Toilet Day today. More than 600 million of the world's children do not have decent toilets. This is according to a new report by the UK-based non-profit organization WaterAid. While everyone is affected by the lack of decent toilets, children are most at risk. For more on this issue, here's the regional support officer at WaterAid, Sakile Kawega. Actually, the health and education and safety of millions of children around the world is threatened because we do not have uh, decent uh, toilets at school and at home. So with some of the findings that we have from our report as WaterAid, we reveal that one in three of the world's population have no safe place to go for a toilet, and that is about 2.3 billion people. So this uh, denial of basic human rights contributes to an appalling death of viral diseases for one child every two minutes. So that makes about 289,000 children under five each year. And then, uh, as you mentioned, we have about 620 million school-going children that do not have decent toilets at school. So this also threatens their health, their education and safety and they are unable to focus and frequently falling ill from the unhygienic environment. And they are even harmed or even killed by dangerous collapsing toilets, and especially girls who might even miss school because they are in in their periods and they don't have a proper place where they can change in the school setting. So, yeah, basically we would say that one in about five primary schools and one in about eight secondary schools do not have decent toilets uh, for children to use when they're in the school setting. So we have also examples from around Africa of uh, such terrible states of uh, toilets and also very bad statistics uh, regarding to access to proper sanitation. Now, you touched on South Africa, and I wanted you to delve a little bit deeper um, into that because it seems like we really do have uh, quite a big issue on this part of the continent. Let's talk about um, just how big the, the issue is in South Africa. Yes, well... South Africa, I think it's been in the news uh, several times. We've had uh, several incidences where children have uh, actually died because of uh, poor conditions of toilets. Recently, we've had a child, a five-year-old girl, who died because she fell into a rotten wooden floor of a school particular train. And, you know, for a child drowning in sewage, that is unacceptable at this day and age. So this is a serious, serious issue that needs us to, you know, really raise the fund, raise the standards. But the good thing is that uh, we have an initiative that was launched by the president. I think it's called the Sanitation Appropriate for Education, the SAFE Initiative. I think it was launched in August. So at least that gives us hope that governments are actually taking up this seriously. Otherwise, it's a serious issue that really needs us to step up our game.
And uh, um, let's look at um, examples of, of countries within the region who may be doing a bit well, or is it just, uh, you know, a bleak picture all around, uh, um, Sakile? No, not really. We do have countries like Zambia, for instance. In Zambia, there are about seven in ten schools that have basic toilets. So that's a good, it's a good example of a, a government that is stepping up its game towards ensuring that every child in, in every school has access to sanitation. So that's the example that we can follow within a region that if a country like Zambia is able to step up its game, then we, even as South Africa, can do the same. Sakile Kawega is the original support officer at Water Aid South Africa talking to Zikona Miso. For a long time now, classical music in Kenya was associated with rich expatriates and maybe a few privileged locals who had ventured outside the East African nation. Not anymore. The country now has just over 200 young people between the ages of 14 and 20, drawn from some of the toughest slums in Nairobi and Mombasa who play classical music at home and abroad. As Sarah Kimani found out, they have not demystified classical music, but used it to turn around their lives. mid-morning in Nairobi's Korogosho slums. Thick plumes of smoke from one of the country's biggest dump sites fill the air. These choking fumes do not, however, manage to stop the music inside St. John's Catholic Church. Just next. It's the passion of music that drove me to guitar classics and I knew this was the place that uh, I fulfill my, my, my future dreams, you know, being a musician. And Simon Wamboy leaves his baton and the teenagers play their instruments as per his instructions. Their mastery of the music is unmistakable. few days these children forget the harsh world outside the church compound and gather here to play classical music. They have been doing it for nine years now under the guidance of their patron Elizabeth Njoroge. The classical music enthusiast started the Art of Music Foundation to fill a gap that she noticed. Classical music was a result of the rich, mostly expatriates. So when a chance came up to mentor children from the slum, she did not hesitate to take up the challenge, starting off with 14 children and borrowed instruments. Why not? Why not? I mean, I think the privileged kids, they probably even take it for granted. But it, I mean, music is so powerful. It is life transforming. It means so much to me. And so when when Father John asked me to teach the kids, it, it didn't matter where they were from. In fact, if anything, I think these kids need the arts more. They have a harder life and the arts give them the skills and the tools and an escape from a very, very difficult life. I think music means more in situations like this than it does elsewhere. And so, if anything, I will fight to have more kids like these ones experience music.
that has now grown to more than 200 children drawn from informal settlements in Nairobi and most recently Mombasa. The first graduates are now mentors and teachers as Simon Karaoke, a manager at Ghetto Classics, explains. Using music, uh, we, we have managed to change lives in, in a simple way. I learn music, I teach one kid, that, that kid teach another. That's how, we, that's how we influence each other. Then it's more friendship, it's more of a place where you, you run away from the harsh environment you're facing outside. Ghetto Classics has played for Pope Francis, former U.S. President Barack Obama, Kenya's Uhuru Kenyatta, and the headline and annual jazz music festival held in Nairobi alongside some of the world's best, Njoroge, again. These kids have, have played in concerts, they have traveled abroad to play. Um, uh, one of the things that also makes me so happy is that they play with other kids from the complete other side of the world. And when they are playing, they are equal. It does not matter what you had for breakfast or didn't have for breakfast. It doesn't matter what home you're going to go to afterwards. When you're playing, you have to play together. You have to listen to each other. You have to follow, otherwise it, it doesn't make sense. And that is a great lesson in life. Both Njoroge and the musicians agree that classical music has changed how they view themselves and their abilities even made life here a little bearable. After I joined Ghetto Classic, I realized that I have a lot of, I have a good talent in music and so I decided to be a musician just after I joined Ghetto Classic. Uh, this uh, certain musician from US called uh, Joseph Alesi, he's a very good um, trombonist player and she, uh, he's also very good trombonist very good in fact one of the best and I look up to playing like, like that mm. yeah, because as they grow they have a longer life ex experience with music with the discipline with the teamwork their dreams become bigger their worlds become bigger and that report was compiled by Sarah Kimani it is 17.45 Central African Time has Tracy Pumkard with your economic news Thank you. South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Godan says in his first term as Finance Minister, he was asked by former President Jacob Zuma to approve a guarantee for Petro SA to purchase a stake in engine from Malaysian oil company Petronas. He says the request for the acquisition followed Zuma's visit to Malaysia in 2013. He says in the application for the government guarantee, the then Energy Minister Ben Martins placed the value of the acquisition at over $1 billion. Godan says he became concerned when it later became apparent that the valuation of the acquisition had in fact been inflated by over $470 million. Godan's appearing before the State Capture Commission in Parktown, Johannesburg. In that conversation, uh, pursuant on the call from Mr. Zuma, I indicated to Mr. Martins on the 1st of April that uh, uh, it's quite important to have A, further information, B, uh, the detailed due diligence on the transaction before any guarantee could be provided. A due diligence is, a, as you point out in the paragraph, a comprehensive appraisal of a business undertaken by a prospective buyer. 
Still in South Africa, opposition party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, Deputy Leader Floyd Shivambu, says Godan is an agent of White Monopoly Capital. He says Godan's appointment to the public enterprise portfolio was done in order to ensure the sale of state-owned companies to the private sector. Shivambu says the EFF will remove Godan in the same way it removed former finance minister Ntlantla Nene. He was addressing EFF protesters outside the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. Godan was nothing. And many people were surprised as to why did he become the Minister of Finance. What I want to tell you today is because he had a private intelligence and force called the Rogue Unit. He is the one who gathered the so-called spy tapes. He is the one who used those tapes to go and bargain with Jacob Zuma to say that he will give you the tapes, drop your corruption charges, and then you must appoint me as a Minister of Finance. Beleaguered Steinhoff Company has appointed its commercial director, Louis Dupree, as its new permanent CEO. Dupree has been a key figure in the company's attempts to recover from its financial crisis. He replaces acting CEO Donny van der Maver, who will step down at the end of next month. This is a year after the retailer revealed a multi-billion dollar hole in its finances following accounting irregularities. Steinhoff's former CEO, Marcus Joester, who resigned after the scandal broke, has been investigated over the crisis that wiped more than 90% of the company's market value and forced it to sell assets. The chairperson of Japanese carmaker Nissan has been arrested in Tokyo after being questioned by police in connection with financial wrongdoing. Nissan says it has uncovered significant acts of misconduct involving Carlos Ghosn. The BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes. Japanese media says Carlos Ghosn has been arrested by the Tokyo Prosecutor's Office and is being questioned on suspicion of serious financial violations. A statement from Nissan's headquarters in Yokohama says an internal investigation has found that Mr Ghosn and another board member, Greg Kelly, have underreported the amount they were compensated over many years. Nissan's current CEO is to recommend the immediate removal of Mr Ghosn from his position. The whistleblower who helped reveal the 228 billion US dollar money laundering saga involving Danske Bank has told the Danish parliament that the bank's management had not taken his warning seriously. Head of the bank's trading unit in the Baltics from 2007 to 2014, Howard Wilkinson says it became clear in April of 2014 that the bank's management did not take his reports on money laundering seriously. The bank has acknowledged its money laundering controls in Estonia were insufficient, but in a report issued in September, it said the board, chairperson and the CEO had not breached their legal obligations. The U.S. dollar is trading at 10.46 Botswana Pula and at 11.81 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.74 Brazilian hail, at 65.96 Russian ruble, at 71.48 Indian rupee, at 6.91 Chinese yuan, and at 13.95 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. 
In commodities, gold is trading at $1,221 and platinum at $843 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $67.39 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibudi Makura with the latest sports news at the SAW. And starting off with athletics news, Kasta Semenya, who cleaned up at the recent SA Sports Awards, but uh, the IAAF World Governing Body have, have decided to leave her out um, in the top five finalists for its Female World Athlete of the Year Award. Now, the International Association of Athletics Federations today announced a shortlist of five, whom of which um, one will be named the winner at the body's awards ceremony on in Monaco, rather, on the 4th of December. Semenya, the Diamond League and Continental Cup 800-meter champion this year, ran the fourth fastest 800-meter of all time and also enjoyed top 10 rankings in the 1,000 as well as the 400-meter events. She took the 800 as well as the 1,500-meter double at the Commonwealth Games as well as the 800-meter and 400-meter double at the African Championships. Her omission leaves long jumper Luvo Manyonga as the only South African athlete with a chance as the male athlete shortlist is likely to be named tomorrow. On to football news, Nigeria's senior men's national football team head coach Geno Raw has held Bafana Bafana's international attacker Percy Tawu as one of the most dangerous players they've played or rather faced in these 2019 AFCON qualifiers. Raw was speaking after leading his team to qualification to the AFCON tournament in Cameroon next year following their one-all draw with Bafana Bafana at the FNB Stadium on Saturday. The Belgian-based Tawu had scored against Nigeria during their 2-0 win in Oyo last year and also provided a quality assist to Lebohang Motiba's equaliser this past weekend. The German-born coach believes that the 24-year-old deserved to be in a bigger European league. I give my congratulations to this wonderful player, Percy Tau. I hope to see him again in a big team in Europe. He has all the qualities to be a player in England or somewhere in a big championship and they give us a lot of problems. But collectively we were able to to, uh, to be here and to answer and to do the result we had to do. Bafana Bafana will have to avoid defeat against Libya to qualify for the AFCON tournament next year when the two teams meet in the decisive qualifier in Tunisia or Algeria in March next year. Nigeria completed a double over the North Africans last month, but it was not easy in the return leg as they won that tie 3-2. Raw says he's also available to offer Stuart Baxter, that is the head coach of Bafana Bafana, his advice if he needs it before this crucial game. I told you already that you have a wonderful player. This is, was also the man of the match. You have uh, a very good goalkeeper also. You have uh, the captain, which is uh, also a very, very good player. Now you have uh, a team who can go also to the AFCON normally. But this last match will not be easy. Fortunately, it's not in Libya. You will play, I think, also in Tunisia. We were there. It's not easy. I can give some advices to your coach if he wants give him my number and uh, i wish you all the best for this difficult match
Meanwhile, Uganda cranes beat Cape Verde to secure a place at next year's Nations Cup in Cameroon. With one game to spare, Patrick Hadou scored the winning goal as Uganda cranes uh, beat the Blue Sharks at the Mandela National Stadium on Saturday to seal a place at the AFCON finals. Felix John has a story from Kampala in Uganda. Patrick Kadu's 78th minute goal gave the Uganda Cranes a safe and direct qualification to the Africa Cup of Nations. The last time Uganda had directly qualified for the Africa Cup of Nations was 1978. Wild celebrations sparked off after Tunisian referee Yusuf Ezrae blew the final whistle with Uganda leading the game 1-0. Head coach Sebastian De Sabre was quick to bash the media that earlier this year had written about his long spell without winning an official game. Disabri took charge of the Cranes in December last year but had to wait until October this year to see his first official national team victory against Lesotho. And finally, in cricket news, the bans on Steve Smith, David Warner and Cameron Bancroft could be reduced by Cricket Australia. Smith and Warner were suspended for 12 months and Bancroft for nine months for ball tampering in South Africa back in March this year. An independent review commissioned by Cricket Australia found the body to be arrogant and controlling and partly to blame. Now, the Australian Cricket um, Cricketers Association said the review was grounds to have the punishment lifted and Cricket Australia could make a decision by the end of this week. Well, those are sports news at the sour stay tuned to channel africa for more news from an african perspective this is africa digest It is 17.56 Central African time. Let's recap out of stories. Provisional results in Madagascar's presidential election indicate the possibility of a run of vote. Disabled persons protest the deepening crisis in Cameroon's restive English-speaking regions. Well, that's where you wrap up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Pumalin, as well, producer, Luanda Maome, technical producer, Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. It is info at channelafrica.co.za on email. Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. WhatsApp us, plus 27763327. Here's Makoti. Bye, Mojimo.
Kwa inu nonse ya menemu wa karandimpata.